Good morning and blessed first day of Advent to everybody. And I thought it would be good to have still a news live stream in the middle of the night, but something focused on either something more constructive or faith building to begin Advent. And while I will still be reporting the news daily and still doing live streams daily into the conceivable future, I think a good way to kick off Advent is with a couple of educational things to help really lift your spirits and help honestly focus us not just on the bad things, but on how the bad things in the, going on in the church and the world really point to everything going on and how we can take this crisis that's in the church and help it to strengthen our faith instead of undermining it. And so today I have two pre-recorded things, one of which I had to break into two parts because of how long it is. One from Bishop Schneider. The first will be from him. He gave an address uh, on his book, Credo. And I, I'm not presenting even the full thing. It's just so long that I'm not going to do that. What I'm doing is focusing on really the meat of what he said, which is the instructions from the saints to learn the faith in order to resist heresy and how we don't actually have to align ourselves with wicked leadership in the church, that we have a duty to stand with the deposit of the faith. A very unpopular message with those in Rome at this time. And I will be presenting that first and I had to break it into two parts. There, I will have the sources to that and Cardinal Mueller's talk on the resurrection of our Lord, both linked in today's show notes at returntotradition.org within a couple of minutes of this live stream ending. So if you're watching this later, well, I welcome you. And uh, again, it's returntotradition.org. Our hosts don't particularly like it when you post links to external things on the platform here, which is understandable. So it's one of their rules. And it's, you know, when I do try to follow. <clears throat> Peter in the chat asks, how long will this diabolical modernism last? Well, Pope St. Pius X wrote Beshendi in 1907, I think it was, con condemning modernism. The what we're, the, One of the things people need to come to grips with is that the problem in the church isn't Francis, that he is the logical outcome of decades upon decades upon decades of every one of the popes since Vatican II playing footsie with modernism, or worse. And they're being at least ambiguous in their teachings and not being forceful and stopping things, if sometimes much worse than that. So Francis is the logical outcome of things. And whether this is the terminal point of it or whether he will be replaced by somebody as bad or worse than him remains to be seen. How long will this last? None of us knows. There are people who hypothesize based on things Sister Lucia said and the dates she said them. But that's a lot of that is conjecture, even if it's like an educated form of conjecture. So I wish good morning to everybody, to you in the chat, and a blessed Advent to all of you. Um, for those of you who are praying either the the breviary or the divine or the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, this is the beginning of a new liturgical year. You are praying the listed prayers for Advent as opposed to other prayers. So with all that said, let's get right into this. Let's start with Bishop Schneider part one of two parts of Bishop Schneider's talk, the text of which I recorded. And it's he's talking about here what various saints and great minds in the church have said about the importance of educating yourself in the faith in order to resist heresy. And in some of which of this will be very surprising because some of these saints and the great doctors of the church and other great minds that he's quoting here are saying things that sound so spooky and eerie to where we are in the world now, 
it's almost prophetic what they were saying. So let's begin here with Bishop Schneider. The Catholic faith is greater. It proceeds and transcends the popes and the bishops because they are the first ones who must obey the faith exemplary and to transmit it integrally to the faithful. The Catholic faith belongs to all times, to all places, and to all generations of Catholics, starting with the apostles and going through all the fathers and doctors of the church and all the saints we know. We should true What should true Catholics do if they are confused or persecuted even within the church? St. Vincent of Larens, a church father from the 5th century, gave useful guidelines in this regard when he said, If some new contagion seeks to infect not only an insignificant part of the church, but the whole, then it will be up to you to cling to antiquity, which today cannot be seduced by any fraud of novelty. He must consult and interrogate the opinions of the ancients, of those, that is to say, that although they live in different times and places, but continue in communion and faith of the only Catholic Church, recognized and approved authorities, and in any case it must make sure that it has been sustained, written, taught, not only by one or two of these authorities, but by all, equally, with a consent, openly, frequently, persistently. Cardinal Robert Seurat spoke the following luminous words, characterizing the exceptional state of crisis within the Church of our day. Indeed, a true cacophony reigns today in the teachings of pastors, bishops, and priests. They seem to contradict each other. Each one imposes his personal opinion, as if it were a certainty. The result is confusion, ambiguity, and apostasy. Great disorientation, deep bewilderment, and devastating uncertainties have been inoculated in the souls of many Christian believers. We believe in him who said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me walketh not in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In the absence of light, everything becomes confused. It is impossible to tell good from evil. There is an urgent need, then, to see once again that the faith is a light. For once the flame of faith dies out, all other lights begin to dim. In fact, the light of faith is unique, since it is capable of illuminating every aspect of human existence. A light this powerful cannot come from ourselves, but from a more primordial source. In a word, it must come from God. When we speak of a crisis in the Church, it is important to point out that the Church, as the mystical body of Christ, continues to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The sources of theology in the Church's doctrinal and moral teaching remain unchanged and unchangeable. The Church, as the continuation and extension of Christ in the world, is not in crisis. It is we, her sinful children, who are in crisis. She enjoys the promise of eternal life. The gates of hell will never prevail against her. Jesus says to Peter, To us petrus et superhanc patrum edificabo ecclesiam meum et porta infera non prevablunt adversum eam. We know and we firmly believe that in her there will always be sufficient light for one who sincerely desires to seek God. St. Paul's appeal to Timothy, his son in the faith, concerns us all. I charge thee before God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who gave testimony under Pontius Pilate, a good confession. Keep that which is committed to thy trust, the deposit, avoiding the profane novelties of words and oppositions of knowledge, falsely so called, which some promising have erred concerning the faith. The deposit of faith continues to be a supernatural divine gift, but today the crisis of the church has entered a new phase, the crisis of the magisterium. Certainly the authentic magisterium, as a supernatural function of the mystical body of Christ, exercised and guided invisibly by the Holy Spirit, cannot be in crisis. The voice and action of the Holy Spirit are constant, and the truth towards which it leads us is steadfast and unchanging. Lex Carendi and Lex Arandi have walked hand in hand and nourished each other throughout the history of the church. 
In his monumental work about catechetical instruction, De Catechizandis Rubidus, St. Augustine explained that the very aim of all knowledge of truth, that is to say, the very aim of a catechism or a compendium of the faith, consists in a virtuous life, according to the recognized truth and according to right worship, which on their part have as their very aim the eternal beatitude. Believe these things in the catechism, therefore, and be on your guard against temptation, so that not only may the devil fail to seduce you by the help of those who are without the church, whether they be pagans or our elder brothers or heretics, but you yourself also may decline to follow the example of those within the Catholic Church, itself whom you see leading an evil life, either indulging in excess in the pleasures of the belly and the throat, or in chastity, or to be live, living in the pomp and inflated arrogance and pride, or be pursuing any sort of life which the law of God condemns and punishes. But rather connect yourself with the good, whom you will easily find out, if you yourself were once become of that character, so that you may, not, you may unite with each other in worshiping and loving God for his own sake, for he himself will be our complete reward to the intent that we may enjoy his goodness and beauty in that life. But as regards the twisted, even if they find their way within the walls of the church, think not that they will find their way into the kingdom of heaven. For in their own time they will be set apart, if they have not been altered for the better. Consequently, follow the example of good men. Bear with the wicked, love all, for as much as you know not what he will be tomorrow who today is evil. Howbeit, love not the unrighteous of such, but love the persons themselves with the express intent that they may apprehend righteousness." On God, every hope ought to be placed. Juan Donasco Cortez, the great Spanish Catholic apologist from the 19th century, made the following observation. The day when society, forgetting the doctrinal decisions of the church, has asked the press and the tribune, news writers and assemblies, what is truth and what is error? On that day, error and truth are confounded in all intellects. Society enters onto the regions of shadows and falls under the empire of fictions. St. John Henry Newman said, a sound, accurate, complete knowledge of Catholic theology is the best implement for a good life in controversy. Any child well instructed in the catechism is, without intending it, a real missioner. And why? Because the world is full of doubtings and uncertainty, and of inconsistent doctrine, a clear, consistent idea of revealed truth. On the contrary, cannot be found outside of the Catholic Church. Consistency, completeness, is a persuasive argument for a system being true. Certainly, if it be cons inconsistent, it is not truth. John Henry Newman also said, We are cherishing a shallow religion, a hollow religion, which will not profit us in the day of trouble. The age, whatever be its peculiar excellences, has this serious defect. It loves an exclusively cheerful religion. It is determined to make religion bright and sunny and joyous, whatever be the form of which it adopts, and it will handle the Catholic doctrine in this spirit. It will skim over it. It will draw it out in mere buckets full. It will substitute its human cistern for the well of truth. It will be afraid of the deep well, the abyss of God's judgments and God's mercies. John Henry Newman thus speaks about a worldly Christianity. Pretending to be the gospel, dropping one whole side of the gospel, its austere character, and considering it enough to be benevolent, courteous, candid, correct in conduct, delicate, though it includes no true fear of God, no fervent zeal for his honor, no deep hatred of sin, no horror at the sight of sinners, no indignation and compassion at the blasphemies of heretics, no jealous adherence to doctrinal truth, no especial sensitiveness about the particular means of gaining ends, provided the ends be good, no loyalty to the holy apostolic church of which the creed speaks, no sense of the authority of religion as an external to the mind, in a word, no seriousness, and therefore is neither hot nor cold, but in scriptural language, lukewarm. 
St. John Henry Newman warned of the danger in the church, where the clergy identified the kingdom of God with purely earthly and imminent progress, and who are fearful of the critics and the persecutions of the world. Cardinal Newman thus spoke. Do not complain of the world's imputing to you more than is true. Those who live as the world lives give countenance to those who think them of the world and seek to form but one party with them. In proportion as you put off the yoke of Christ, so does the world by a sort of instinct recognize you and think well of you accordingly. My brethren, there is an eternal enmity between the world and the church. The church declares by the mouth of an apostle, whoso will be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Does not the world scoff at all that is glorious, all that is majestic in our holy religion? Does it not speak against the special creations of God's grace? Does it not believe the possibility of purity and chastity? Does it not slander the profession of celibacy? Does it not deny the virginity of Mary? Does it not cast out her very name as evil? Does it not scorn her as a passed away woman whom you now know to be the mother of all the living, and the great intercessor of the faithful? Does it not ridicule the saints? Does it not make light of their relics? Does it not despise the sacraments? Does it not blaspheme the presence which dwells upon our altars, and mock bitterly and fiercely at our believing that what it calls bread and wine is that very same body and blood of the Lamb, which lay in Mary's womb and hung on the cross? What are we, that we should be better treated than our Lord, and his mother, and his servants, and his works? Nay, what are we, if we are better treated, of friends of those who treat us well and who ill-treat him. O oh, my dear brethren, be children of grace, not of nature. Be not seduced by this world's sophistries and assumptions. It pretends to be the work of God, but in reality it comes of Satan. I know my sheep, says our Lord, and mine know me, and they follow me. I think those words of Bishop Schneider are important, and important enough that I'm going to continue the rest of his talk here in just a moment. I found the words of Cardinal Newman to be particularly striking. I mean, he was practically declaring, uh, describing 21st century Christianity, regardless of so-called denomination, right? I mean, this worldly Christianity that has separated the justice of God from the joys of the faith and just emphasized the happiness and group hug nature that we see that turns Christianity into a parody of itself. He's describing it. We're just living through it. He just happened to describe it 150 years before it actually came to pass. It tells you how bad things were even in his time where he could say such things and have it be taken seriously. But here we will now finish with Bishop Schneider's remarks on this. St. Augustine spoke about the mystery of sin and apostasy within the church, yet he admonishes the good Christians to keep also trust in the victory of Christ and in God's goodness, who always grants to his church his consolations, even in midst of trials. In his book about the city of God, he wrote these words, Whoever shall live piously in Christ shall suffer persecution, because even when those who are without do not rage, and thus there seems to be and really is tranquility, which brings very much consolation, especially to the weak, yet there are not wanting, yea, there are many within who by their abandoned manners torment the hearts of those who live piously, since by them the Christian and Catholic name is blasphemed. And the dearer that name is to those who will live piously in Christ, the more do they grieve that through the wicked, who have a place within it, comes to be less loved than pious minds desire. That grief which arises in the hearts of the pious, who are persecuted by the manners of bad or false Christians, is profitable to the sufferers, because it proceeds from the charity in which they do not wish them, either to perish or hinder the salvation of others. Finally, great consolations grow out of their chastisement, which imbue the souls of the pious with a fecundity as great as the pains with which they were troubled concerning their own perdition. 
Thus in this world in these evil days, not only from the time of the bodily presence of Christ and his apostles, but even from that of Abel, whom first his wicked brother slew because he was righteous, and thenceforth even to the end of this world, the church has gone forward on pilgrimage amid the persecutions of the world and the consolations of God. The Catholic faith cannot admit a change or a rupture or a reinterpretation to another meaning than it had been constantly believed and taught for 2,000 years. Nowadays, we see the introduction of some changes and ruptures in the presence of the truth regarding doctrine and morals. To hide and mask such changes, seductive expressions are used such as paradigm shift or hermeneutic of continuity, even when it is obvious that the change contradicts the constant belief and practice of the church. In such situations, one should say, I know my Catholic faith. I will not permit myself to be confused. For the sake of this faith, I am ready to give everything. The church has to fulfill her primary mission of proclaiming the truth, bearing in mind that she will always be persecuted. John Henry Newman said, The church of God on earth will be greatly reduced, as we may well imagine, in its apparent numbers in the times of Antichrist, by the open desertion of the powers of the world. This desertion will begin in a professed indifference to any particular form of Christianity, under the pretense of universal toleration, which toleration will proceed from no true spirit of charity and forbearance, but from a design to undermine Christianity by multiplying and encourage sectaries. The pretended toleration will go far beyond a just toleration, even as it regards the different groups of Christians. For governments will pretend an indifference to all, and will give a protection and preference to none. From the toleration of the most pestilent heresies, they will proceed to the toleration of the neighbors of our so-called elder brothers, atheism, and at last to a positive persecution of the truth of Christianity. The merely nominal Christians will all desert the profession of the truth when the powers of the world desert it. In this tragic event, I take to be typified by the order of St. John to measure the temple and the altar and leave the outer court, national schismatic churches, heresies, to be trodden underfoot by the, by the Gentiles. The property of the clergy will be pillaged, the public worship insulted and vilified by these deserters of the faith they once professed, who are not called apostates because they were never in earnest in their profession. Their profession was nothing more than a compliance with fashion and public authority. In principle, they were always what they now appear to be, Gentiles. When this general desertion of the faith takes place, then will commence the sackcloth ministry of the witnesses. They will have no support from governments, no honors, no emoluments, no immunities. But they will have that which no earthly power can take away, which they derive from Christ to commission them to be his witness. Hilaire Belloc presented already in 1938 an almost prophetical analysis of the current situation with Christianity, and specifically the Catholic Church has to face, affirming, The modern attack on the Catholic Church, the most universal that she has suffered since her foundation, has so far progressed that it has already produced social, intellectual, and moral forms which combined give it the savior of a religion. But reason today is everywhere decried. The ancient process of conviction by argument and proof is replaced by reiterated affirmation. And almost all the terms which were the glory of reason carry with them now an atmosphere of contempt. So what has happened, for instance, to the word logic, to the word controversy? Note such popular phrases as, no one is yet ever convinced by an argument, or again, anything may be proved, or that may be all right in logic, but in practice is very different. The speech of men is becoming saturated with expressions which everywhere connote contempt for the use of the intelligence. When reason is dethroned, not only is faith dethroned, the two subversions go together, but every moral and legitimate activity of the human soul is dethroned at the same time. There is no God. So the words God is truth, which the mind of Christian Europe used as a postulate in all it did, cease to have meaning. None can analyze the rightful authority of government nor set bounds to it. 
In the absence of reason, political authority reposing on mere force is boundless. And reason is thus made a victim because humanity itself is what the modern attack is destroying in its false religion of humanity. Reason being the crown of man and at the same time his distinguishing mark, the Anarchs march against reason as their principal enemy. Either we of the faith shall become a small, persecuted, neglected island amidst mankind, or we shall be able to lift at the end of the struggle the old battle cry, Christus impedat. Lastly, there is this very important and perhaps decisive consideration. Though the social strength of Catholicism, in numbers certainly, and in most other factors as well, is declining throughout the world, the issue is between Catholicism and the completely new pagan thing, the destruction of all tradition, the breaking of our with our inheritance, is now clearly marked. Rejoice, O Virgin Mary, for thou alone hast destroyed all heresies in the whole world. These words Holy Mother Church prays since more than a millennium in the divine office and the votive mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Why has the Blessed Virgin Mary destroyed all heresies? Because she believed that the Son of God will incarnate to become man. The Christian faith consists essentially in the faith in Christ, true God and true man. For one who believes in the divinity of Christ will accept all what Christ taught. The Blessed Virgin Mary was the first who believed in the incarnation of God. And since then, this faith will never perish on earth until the last judgment. Through the faith of Mary, the true faith was established on earth. She was the first who believed, and therefore she is the most powerful to destroy unbelief and heresy. That was Bishop Schneider at a recent conference just, uh, talking about the need for a good catechism. It was a talk about Credo, his new work, which many of you have gotten a copy of already. I found it interesting because his essential point is that if you want to resist the errors in the church and in the world, first thing you have to do is know your faith. And that's why we need a good catechism. The underlying assumption he's making, and he has kind of hinted at this before, is that the current catechism, the that some call the catechism of John Paul II, isn't very good. And for those who might take a bit of umbrage at that, the cardinals who put together that catechism back in the 1990s themselves said when it was done that the thing would need to be revised, that it's not the best catechism ever promulgated. So Bishop Schneider took it upon himself to go find older catechisms. Now I want to, before I transition to a new, to Mr. Uh, or to Cardinal, rather Cardinal Mueller's talk, it's worth noting here that the, that there was a phrase he used in this, his talk here, where he talked about you, the people essentially rejecting the deposit of faith through a couple through calling for a paradigm shift or by analyzing things through a hermeneutic of continuity. That is the first time I had heard and seen Bishop Schneider reject the hermeneutic of continuity. I featured that quote in a video earlier this week, I believe. And that's a statement. It's a major statement. It shows that he is moving more and more towards recognizing that there has been a very serious problem with the documents of the, of the council. He has said this before, but not so bluntly that the hermeneutic of continuity itself is a dangerous idea. And I, I find that to be very, very, very interesting. Mary Woolley says that those are prophetic words of Bishop Schneider, that he said much of that in Dublin last week. That might be where he gave this address. If not, he's giving similar addresses, which makes sense in different places. Robert Richards says the catechism of the Council of Trent is an absolute masterpiece. It's probably the best catechism ever devised. It really is. It's And the classic format of catechisms really can't be beat. It's maybe the biggest weakness of the current catechism of the Catholic Church. The classic format is 
very entry level to Thomism. It's a question is asked and then the, the church's answer, which then leads to the next question, then leads to the next answer all the way through the book. It's a wonderful format for teaching anybody the faith, the basics of the faith, the, the things that you and I as lay people need to know. Um, I do want to, um, yeah, the <laughs> DM says the hermeneutic of continuity is no more. And he's not wrong. I, Francis agrees. He chastised people for following the, the hermeneutic of continuity a couple of years ago himself. He didn't quite say it as bluntly and, and ambiguously, but when you read, read what he said, that's what he was talking about, was the hermeneutic of continuity. That the only magisterium that matters now is basically his interpretation of the post-conciliar era. So we're going to go now to Cardinal Mueller, who is going to give you something I think that you should take with you through Advent, at least for the next week of Advent. And also I've got a video about from St. Thomas Aquinas talking about Advent shortly, uh, coming live in like an hour from the time that this is being recorded. But this is Cardinal Mueller talking about the resurrection of our Lord. It's really everything about our faith points to the to the cross of, of Easter and or to the cross of... Uh, Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So here is Cardinal Mueller reminding us of that, not to get so lost in the weeds of things. To the Sadducees' question, which was intended to reduce the resurrection from the dead to absurdity with a constructed example of the seven brothers who married the same woman one after the other, Jesus answers with the revelation of the resurrection of the dead, which necessarily follows from God's will to save. Jesus goes back to the self-revelation of God, who appeared to Moses in the sign of the burning bush, and revealed himself to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the being. The creator of life did not create death and takes no pleasure in the destruction of the living. He created everything to exist, and the creatures of the world bring salvation. Death came into the world through the envy of the devil and the sin of Adam. So not through a positivistic, arbitrary connection between God and immortality, but because God is life. That is why every single human being in his spiritual and physical nature is called to eternal life. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for in him all are alive. See the Gospels of Luke, Matthew, and Mark. As a saving event, the resurrection does not remain at the level of the mere restoration of man in his physical and spiritual unity. Although Jesus' disciples shared the land of the chosen's belief that it is in God's power to bring the dead back to life, they were perplexed at the transfiguration of Jesus on Mount Tabor, when Jesus spoke of the future physical resurrection of the Son of Man. For Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the full and final revelation of his sonship with God. And in our resurrection from the dead, beyond the restoration of our natural, physical, and spiritual unity, we are revealed in grace and glory as the sons of God. When Jesus says of those who are worthy to share in that world and in the resurrection of the dead, that they can no longer die because they are equal to the angels in heaven, then this is certainly not transformation of human nature into the nature of an angel, but rather the immortality that belongs to them as persons as to angels. The deepest reason for the resurrection of the dead, as a fact, is that, as children of the resurrection, we have become children of God. Participation in Christ's relationship as a son to the Father in the giving life of the Holy Spirit is the gift of eternal life. In his messianic work, Jesus realized the works of God through his healing deeds and symbolic acts. His miracles are not tricks to surprise fate, to satisfy sensationalism, or to use his divine omnipotence to force our free devotion to him and force us to believe. 
The opinion of the deists and pantheists also completely ignores the biblical understanding of God. When they want to reduce Jesus' miracles to absurdity as a kind of admission of the necessary improvement of an impossibly defective and perfect work of creation. In fact, everything created is perfect with the scope of its essence. The perfection of the universe also includes its structure and the various degrees of participation in being and its realization in the different entities, species, and individuals. For example, the difference between uh, men and women is an expression of the natural perfection of man as a creature and the supernatural orientation towards grace and the vision of God. But since the course of the world takes place in the system of dual causal effects and thus enables personal freedom in action and suffering to interact in a flexible and influenceable manner, man only has the opportunity to behave positively or negatively towards the truth and goodness of being and thus to determine his fate responsible. The men and women who are destined for marriage are free as persons to declare their mutual love forever and to participate in its perfection in God, cooperation with grace, or to be guilty and face the negative consequences for this to bear God's judgment. Jesus' miracles are an expression and proof of his messianic mission to enforce God's will to save the spiritual and physical needs of people in a world characterized by sin and suffering. Jesus Christ is the reign of God in his person. The Messiah has power over death. Christ Jesus destroyed death and brought us the light of imperishable life through the gospel. Death is the uncrossable limit of nature's self-healing powers and the ability of human planning and action. That is why the raising from the dead is a miracle in the absolute sense, because only God gives life to the dead and calls what is not into existence. When Jesus, out of pity for the relatives, the daughter of the temple leader, Jairus, the young man from Nain, the only son of a widow, and his friend Lazarus, Free from the absolute powerlessness of death, he then first reveals himself as the author of life. Therefore, Christ convicts death of its unnaturalness and enmity against human nature, which was created for immortality. And the pre-Easter Jesus, with his raising of the dead, points in an exemplary way to the general resurrection from the dead on the last day. It is a revelation of the new and eternal life that has come to us through the resurrection of Christ. For since by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But there is a certain order. First is Christ, then when Christ comes, all who belong to him will follow. And finally, the mighty deeds, miracles, and signs of Jesus assure us of the reliability of God and of Jesus, the Lord and Messiah, that we can all place our hope in life and in death. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is useless, and you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are then lost. If we have placed our hope in Christ for this life alone, we are more wretched than any other man. But now Christ has been raised from the dead as the first of the dead. For since death came through a man, even through a man comes a resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the dead and eternal life, which we profess in the symbol of baptism, are therefore not grandiose promises, but rather describe people's being in God and the gracious fulfillment of his triune life. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you have not received a spirit of servitude, so that you should still fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. But if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The resurrection is the insertion of all living people who are doomed to death and all those who have already died in the relationship of the eternal Son to the Father by means of incorporation into the assumed suffering human nature of Christ, which he has shared with us since the Incarnation. We share in it as members of his mystical body, the Church, the water of baptism, and the Eucharistic bread of life, which is Jesus himself. 
Jesus himself reveals himself as his own life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh for the living of the world. Just as God once communicated his name to Moses for all generations in the word of his self-revelation, I am that I am. So the Son of God, who in the world is to come, tells us his name, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in the name of Jesus, which the Father has given him, even though he dies, he will live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. At the highest point of revelation of his divine glory, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is at hand. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. For you have given him power to eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that address from Cardinal Mueller was given in a video form that he did, but it was in German. And uh, the transcript was published also in German on the website calf.net several days ago. I will have both links to the transcripts of these in my show notes at return to tradition.org here in just a few minutes, because we're going to wrap this up here. Um, I'm curious what you think of all of this. Do you find this to be useful reflection in Advent? I'm not one who ever thought that during times of penance and fasting, we should turn our eyes away from the reality of things going on in the church, that we should instead just anchor our understanding more fully in things with the hard and true teachings of the faith. That way we can get a better understanding and not lose hope, especially since Advent should be a time of hope. After all, we are preparing for the coming nativity of our blessed Lord and here just, just over three weeks from today. I'm curious, though, what you think of this. So let me know in the chat or in the comments if you're watching this later. And this is your chance for some final questions before I wrap this up. Well, it says it's only been 11 months since the passing of Benedict the 16th, and it just seems like it's been longer. It has been a wild year. I will absolutely concur with you on that. It has been an absolute wild year. And it's, it seems like things are picking up in speed. And I would hope that I'm not the only one noticing this either. Traditionalist Catholic reminds us that uh, that the that, that our adversaries don't fear the day of the coming of the Lord, and you're, you're not wrong. They they don't. And uh, Bellator reminds us that others will be next after Burke and Schneider, probably Mueller, or after Burke and Strickland, probably Mueller, Schneider. I mean, they going after Cardinal Burke means they were willing to go after someone who's technically retired. So all bets are off. All right, folks, I thank you for tuning in today. Uh, remember, uh, everybody we've talked about in our, this video today in your prayers, as well as, you know, my family and those of us in the chat who may have asked for prayers that I didn't catch today. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria. <laughs>